You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio, 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents The Rowan Report, a weekly news magazine that recaps local, national, and international news that affects you. And now, the Rowan Radio News Team. Good morning and welcome to the Rowan Report here on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. I'm Allie Bruce with the Rowan Radio News Team. Some of this week's headlines include, President Biden is marking the one-year anniversary of the PACT Act, an Ecuadorian candidate was shot at a rally, and there was a shooting in Philadelphia. Here's your national news recap for the week of August 6th. President Biden is marking the one-year anniversary of the PACT Act being signed into law. While speaking from a VA medical center in Salt Lake City, Biden called the law the most significant expansion of benefits for veterans exposed to toxic chemicals in decades. The VA has doled out nearly $2 billion in benefits to veterans in the year since the law was passed. The law expands VA health care eligibility to veterans who served in the post-9-11 era. Biden has maintained his late son, Beau Biden's cancer, was in part caused by exposure to burn pits during his service in Iraq. The Justice Department is proposing a January start date for the trial in former President Trump's election interference case. In a court brief filed Thursday, Special Counsel Jack Smith proposed the trial being on January 2nd. Prosecutors also estimate the trial will take four to six weeks. Trump faces four federal charges in connection to his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The defense will also submit a proposed start date with the judge determining the calendar for the trial. New York City Mayor Eric Adams on Wednesday called for the federal government to declare a state of emergency to manage the crisis at the border, saying the influx of asylum seekers could end up costing the city billions of dollars in the coming years. Adams said more than 57,000 migrants are under the city's care on an average night and nearly 100,000 asylum seekers have sought shelter there since last year. At a news conference Wednesday, Adams said the federal state of emergency would allow federal funds to be allocated quickly to help address the urgent challenges we face. New York has spent $1.4 billion during the fiscal year 2023 on shelter, food, and services for asylum seekers and could eventually spend upwards of $12 billion from fiscal years 2023 to 2025 without policy changes or further support. The Adams administration is calling on the federal government to provide more reimbursements for costs incurred by the city. Adams' request echoes those of other politicians, mostly Republicans, who have called for President Joe Biden to declare a national emergency. Texas GOP Governor Greg Abbott sent a letter with a similar request in 2021, the same year more than two dozen House Republicans signed a letter asking Biden to declare a national emergency at the southern border. President Biden is issuing a major disaster declaration for the state of Hawaii as deadly fires ravage Maui and other areas. The move frees up additional federal funding for disaster relief. The president also ordered all available federal assets to support the response, including the U.S. Coast Guard and the Navy's Third Fleet. At least 36 people have died as a result of the fires. A Chinese cartel is being ordered to pay an Ohio family $18 million after their son overdosed on fentanyl. Back in 2015, 37-year-old Thomas Rao died in Akron from a fentanyl overdose. That fentanyl was traced to the Zhang drug trafficking cartel in China. 
A Summit County judge awarded the family the $18 million judgment, but it's unlikely that the cartel will pay up as they're located in China. After his son's death, Jim Ra went on to found Families Against Fentanyl, which works to classify fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. If that classification were to happen, it would give national resources to federal agencies to target distributors of fentanyl. Senator Dianne Feinstein fell at home Tuesday and visited the hospital to get checked out, her office said. Senator Feinstein briefly went to the hospital Wednesday afternoon as a precaution after a minor fall in her home. All of her scans were clear and she returned home, a Feinstein spokesperson told NBC News in an email Wednesday. She was at the hospital for about two hours, the spokesperson said. TMZ first reported Wednesday morning that the 90-year-old senator paid a visit to the hospital after she tripped and fell Tuesday at her San Francisco home. Feinstein's health has been closely watched. This year, she missed three months of work in the Senate after she was hospitalized with shingles. She has rejected calls to resign and insists she will remain a senator until her term ends in January of 2025 and then retire. There are more legal troubles for embattled Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's now reportedly facing federal charges, alleging that he used the power of his office to help a political donor. The Austin American Statesman reports that federal prosecutors are making their case before a grand jury in San Antonio. This is separate from Paxton's impeachment trial in the Texas Senate, which starts next month. The three-term Republican could be kicked out of office on bribery allegations. NOAA is updating its forecast as Florida enters the peak of hurricane season. The agency released a new report early Thursday predicting an above-normal season in the Atlantic. Forecasters say the unusually warm ocean temperatures are expected to counterbalance the ongoing El Nino. NOAA's new outlook includes up to 21 named storms and up to 11 hurricanes, with two to five of those becoming major hurricanes. The 2023 Atlantic season will run through November. I'm Allie Bruce, and that was your national news. I'm Gavin Trutzenbach with your international news report. Our first international story comes from the BBC. A candidate in Ecuador's forthcoming presidential election who campaigned against corruption and gangs has been shot dead at a campaign rally. Fernando Vicevicencio, a member of the country's National Assembly, was attacked as he left the event in the capital, Quito, on Wednesday. He is one of the few candidates to allege links between organized crime and government officials in Ecuador. A criminal game called Los Lobos, which translates to the wolves, has claimed responsibility. Los Lobos is the second largest gang in Ecuador, with some 8,000 members, many of whom are behind bars. The gang has been involved in a number of recent deadly prison fights, in which scores of inmates have been brutally killed. A breakaway faction from the Los Chineros gang, Los Lobos is believed to have links to the Mexico-based Jalisco New Generation Cartel, for which it traffics cocaine. Suspicion for the killing had first fallen on Los Chineros, which had threatened Mr. Vicevicencio last week, but Los Lobos claimed responsibility in a video in which gang members wearing balaclavas flashed gang signs and waved their weapons. Ecuador has historically been a relatively safe and stable country in Latin America, but crime has shot up in recent years, fueled by the growing presence of Colombia. Colombian and Mexican drug cartels which have infiltrated local criminal gangs. The killing comes less than a fortnight before presidential elections, in which the issue of insecurity 
features as the top concern. The cartels use Ecuador, which has a good infrastructure and large ports, to smuggle cocaine produced in neighboring Colombia and Peru to the U.S. and Europe. They have threatened and targeted anyone who they feel stands in their way. Fernando Vicencio, a serving congressman and former journalist, had condemned what he said was the lenient approach to the gangs, saying that were he to come to power, there would be a crackdown. Mr. Vicencio was married and had five children, and was one of eight candidates in the first round of the election, although he was not the front-runner and was polling around the middle of the pack. He is not the first politician to be assassinated. Last month, the mayor of the city of Manta was shot dead, while in February, a candidate for mayor in the city of Puerto Lopez was killed. But the shooting of a presidential candidate at a public event in the capital is the most brazen attack so far and shocking testimony to the strength of the gangs. Our next two international stories are coming from Reuters. Ukraine announced a humanitarian corridor on Thursday to let dozens of cargo ships trapped in its ports since the outbreak of war last year sail into the Black Sea, where shipping routes are under scrutiny since Russia quit a deal to allow grain exports. At least initially, the corridor appears to apply to vessels such as container ships that have been stuck in Ukrainian ports since the February 2022 invasion, and were not covered by the deal that opened the ports for grain shipments last year. But it could be a major test of Ukraine's ability to reopen sea lanes at a time when Russia is trying to reimpose its de facto blockade, having abandoned the grain deal last month. Ole Chalik, a spokesperson for Ukraine's navy, told Reuters by telephone that today a new temporary humanitarian corridor has started to work. The corridor will be very transparent. We will put cameras on the ships, and there will be a broadcast to show that this is purely a humanitarian mission and has no military purpose. The routes would be primarily used for civilian ships, which have been in the Ukrainian ports of Chornomorsk, Odessa, and Pivdeny since the beginning of the full-scale invasion by Russia on February 24, 2022. Vessels whose owners or captains officially confirm that they are ready to sail in the current conditions will be allowed to pass through the routes, the statement said. It said a risk remained from mines in the Black Sea and the military threat from Russia. Chalik gave no indication the corridor had been agreed with Russia. The United Nations has said Russia's decision to quit the deal risks creating a global food crisis, hurting poor countries worst by keeping grain from one of the world's biggest exporters off the market. On to our third and final international story. Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni on Thursday denounced the World Bank's decision to suspend new funding in response to a harsh anti-LGBTQ law and vowed to find alternative sources of credit. The World Bank said on Tuesday that the law, which imposes the death penalty for certain same-sex acts, contradicted its values and that it it would pause new funding until it could test measures to protect discrimination in projects it finances. The World Bank has an existing portfolio of $5.2 billion in Uganda, although these projects will not be affected. The anti-LGBTQ law, enacted in May, has drawn widespread criticism from local and international rights organizations and Western governments, though it is popular domestically. Museveni said in a statement that Uganda was trying to reduce borrowing in any case and would not give in to pressure from foreign institutions. He said, It is therefore unfortunate that the World Bank and other actors dare want to coerce us into abandoning our faith, culture, principles, and sovereignty using money. They really underestimate all Africans. Museveni further said that if Uganda needed to borrow, it could tap other sources, and that oil production expected to start by 2025 would provide additional revenues. He added he hoped that the World Bank would reconsider its decision. In June, the United States imposed visa restrictions on some Ugandan officials in response to the law. President Joe Biden also ordered a review of U.S. aid to Uganda. I'm Gavin Trutzenbach. And that was your international news report. I'm Riley Adams with your local news. From Fox 29, 
Two men have died following a shooting inside of a takeout restaurant in Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood late Wednesday night. It happened just after 11.30 p.m. on East Tioga and North Lee Streets. Police say a masked suspect entered the doorway of the restaurant and fired as many as 14 shots, striking two men inside. One 40-year-old victim died at the scene. A 44-year-old victim was able to crawl out of the restaurant and was rushed to a nearby hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. Police say the incident was captured on surveillance cameras and several spent shell castings were found inside the restaurant and on the front step. The investigation is ongoing. From 6ABC. Police have arrested a suspect in the killing of a 71-year-old woman inside her Mercer County, New Jersey home. Denzel Whitmore, 24, of Hamilton, is charged with murder, burglary, and tampering with evidence. He was taken into custody on Thursday afternoon. The victim, 71-year-old Elaine Murray, was found dead in her home on Galston Drive in West Windsor Township. The prosecutor's office said neighbors went to the home for a well-being check just after 8 p.m. Wednesday. That's when they noticed evidence of a break-in. Police arrived and found Murray on the floor of a second-floor bedroom. Prosecutor said she appeared to have visible signs of injuries to the face and she was bleeding from from the back of her head. An investigation into this murder continues. From NBC10, families living in a New Jersey building are being forced out of their homes with only 24 hours notice after the city condemned their building. The sudden notice has caused immeasurable panic for dozens of families in the building in Plainfield. All have been notified that they must be out of their homes by 4 p.m. Wednesday, given barely a day to gather their things and go somewhere else, leaving them scrambling to find a new place to live. The reason families are being forced out has nothing to do with them in particular, but rather their apartment complex. It has been condemned by the city. Some residents have lived in the complex for more than two decades. Others said they just moved in recently. They regularly paid their rent and are now being told to leave in a rush without any direct communication from the city of Plainfield or the property owner residents said. One of the buildings in question is 50115 on West 7th Street. It has a total of 40 apartment units spread across four floors, housing more than 80 families, most of whom are Hispanic and includes seniors, women, and children. The Division of Inspections flyer notes stated that the building structures on West 7th Street have been declared unfit for human habitation, referring to a lack of maintenance, consulting a hazard to health and safety. A city task force said conditions inside, such as mold, water leaks, and fire hazards, were too unsafe. Neighbors said they were shocked to see the vacant order signs posted on the lobby Tuesday around 4 p.m. and that property management had yet to respond to their complaints. For that, they blasted the landlord and the upkeep of the property. Many residents are now trying to figure out where to go and what to do next. On Wednesday, outraged families marched to the city hall demanding answers. Mayor Adrian O'Map attempted to placate the crowd of more than 100, saying we know what, what occurred is very upsetting for all involved, while throwing blame at the landlord's feet. Tempers flared in the afternoon when a man was seen being escorted away from the apartment building by police. Neighbors, identifying him as one of the landlords, mobbed the man as he was helping into a waiting car and drove away. One woman repeatedly brought her fist down to the passenger side of the window until it was smashed. The mayor said the owners operate six residential buildings in Plainfield, four of which have been condemned. From CBS 3. As part of a three-day state funeral, people paid their respects to late New Jersey Lieutenant Governor Sheila Oliver in Trenton on Thursday after she died on August 1st at the age of 71. Oliver's body is currently in state inside the rotunda of New Jersey State Capitol. There has been a steady stream of people coming to attend to attend Thursday's visitation for the late Lieutenant Governor. Inside the rotunda, people lined up to view the casket, which is draped in an American flag and flaked on both sides by a New Jersey State Trooper. Among the people who came to pay their respects were Governor Phil Murphy and First Lady Tammy Murphy. Richa Barlow says it's important to recognize Oliver's accomplishments as the first black lieutenant governor and first black female assembly speaker. Oliver, who represented Essex County in North Jersey, will lie in state Friday at the county courthouse. Her funeral will be held Saturday at the Cathedral Basilica of Sacred Heart in Newark. From News 12, a stable in Piscataway is closing its doors after 33 years. Buzzy's Food and Spirits, a family-owned business, will serve its last meals on Saturday. Gary Maddox, another longtime patron, says he's devastated that the restaurant is closing. Jerry's family purchased Carr's Tavern in 1990 and renamed it Buzzy's, a nickname for their family. Since then, it's served hundreds of local patrons in a 3,300-square-foot space with a 40-seat bar and 65-seat dining room. The COVID-19 pandemic forced many restaurant owners in New Jersey to close their doors forever, change restaurant hours, and downsize staff. If you want one last burger or French onion soup, the kitchen at Buzzy's will be open 
through 10 p.m. Saturday, August 12th. Bar service will be open until 2 a.m. I'm Riley Adams, and that was your local news. I'm Aiden Doherty with your Rowan News. From high above on active research site and fossil quarry, the newest museum in America and the only one of its kind anywhere will peer deep into the planet's past with an eye on its present and future. Expected to become an international magnet to explorers of all ages, the Gene and Rick Edelman Fossil Park and Museum of Rowan University, a $75 million structure in Mantua Township, will be a place of research and exploration when it opens next spring. A grand opening is expected in April 2024. The interactive museum will be unlike any other, dubbed by Smithsonian Magazine among the most anticipated museums on earth. Dr. Kenneth Locavara, founding dean of Rowan's School of Earth and Environment, is leading construction of the Fossil Park and Museum. We're applying technology in ways that most people have never seen to augment their experience, Locavara said. There will be so many reasons to come. Some people will come just for the VR or for the playground or for the food, and that's before they even hunt for fossils. This will be a multi-day experience to take it all in. More than 140 political interns working this summer in the tri-state region enjoyed a day of education, networking, and leadership training on August 3rd during the 6th Annual Mid-Atlantic Political Intern Summit at Rowan University. Presented by the Rowan Institute for Public Policy and Citizenship, MAPIS featured addresses from members of Congress, including U.S. Rep. Andy Kim and U.S. Rep. Bonnie Watson-Coleman, as well as talks by Kevin O'Toole and Amy Mansu, who is the president and CEO of Inspira Health Network. Interns attending MAPIS hauled more than 80 different colleges, universities, and high schools during the free day-long summit. They enjoyed breakout sessions that focus on a host of topics, including the Republican and Democratic parties heading into 2024, finding a job in politics in Washington, D.C., how to disagree without being disagreeable, learning to lobby, and driving social change. During a spirited career networking lunch, interns connected and learned from leaders in policy analysis, political and media consulting, contract lobbying, and issue advocacy, and legislative politics. Fundamentally, RIPPAC is about workforce development for democracy, said Ben Dworkin, the founding director of RIPPAC. This intern summit, our largest ever, was a unique opportunity for students across the political spectrum to come together to learn, laugh, and network as they prepare to lead in the future. I'm Aiden Doherty, and that was your Rowan News. That does it for the first half of the Rowan Report, wrapping up this week's national, international, and local news. We are going to take a quick break. Up next, we have your weekly sports, business, and entertainment news. Stay tuned right here on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. Welcome back to the Rowan Report. I'm Allie Bruce along with the Rowan Radio News team. I'm Jack Miller for the Roan Report with your news from the professional sports world. Baltimore Orioles TV broadcaster for MASN, Kevin Brown, was suspended for comments that he said during the opening of the Orioles and Rays series finale game. He stated facts and statistics about the Orioles' past series against the Rays and was setting up a cool story for the O's since they won two out of three and they were trying to win game four and win their first series against the Rays at their home stadium since 2017. Brown got suspended for this for apparently talking down on the team and Brown had support from Orioles. Orioles fans as free Kevin Brown chants roared around Oriole Park on Tuesday, and he also had support from other broadcasters around the league. Here's what Yankees TV broadcaster Michael Kay had to say about the situation. If John Angelos didn't like that, then he's thin-skinned, he's unreasonable, and he should actually get a call from Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, because it's unconscionable that you would actually suspend a really good broadcaster 
for no reason whatsoever. He didn't do anything wrong. Brown came back on the mic on Friday for the start of the Orioles and Mariners series. Phillies newly acquired starting pitcher Michael Lorenzen threw a no-hitter in his second Philadelphia start against the Washington Nationals on Wednesday night. It's the 14th no-hitter in Philadelphia Phillies history. The last one recorded by a Philly was Cole Hamels against the Cubs at Wrigley Field in 2015. And the last one at Citizens Bank Park, which was the first at Citizens Bank Park, was against the Reds in the National League Division Series in 2010 with Roy Holiday on the mound. This is the first time the Nationals got no hits in a game since 1999, back when they were the Montreal Expos. More history was made by the Phillies on Wednesday night. Weston Wilson made his first appearance in the starting lineup, and he came out with a bang. In the bottom of the second inning, Wilson cranked a home run in his very first at-bat. He is now the sixth player in franchise history to do this, with the last time a Phillies player hit a home run in his first MLB at-bat since Marlon Anderson in 1998. Wilson's family was in attendance and was in tears once the ball reached the seats. We had UFC fights and WWE SummerSlam on Saturday night, but we also had a fight on the diamond that night as well. Tim Anderson and Jose Ramirez fought after Ramirez slid into second base head first and Tim Anderson wouldn't move away. Ramirez didn't like that and started talking and pointing towards Anderson. A few seconds later, Tim Anderson took his glove off and both of the guys squared up in preparation to fight each other. They both took a couple swings at each other when Jose Ramirez caught Tim Anderson with a right hook that put Anderson on the floor. They were both later suspended for their actions. The radio call later went viral as everyone really loved the line, down goes Anderson. Elvis Andrews has now witnessed the two most recent fistfights in MLB history, with the last one being between Rugnet Odor and Jose Bautista. Thankfully, neither Anderson or Ramirez was hurt from the fight, but Eloy Jimenez from the White Sox tweaked his ankle trying to split the two apart. A ton of history being made these past few weeks in baseball. Again, I'm Jack Miller for The Run Report with your news from the professional sports world. Megan Steckler with your Roan Report business update. Wall Street is closing with stocks slightly higher. This comes after consumer prices gained 3.2% in the month of July. On a monthly basis, inflation rose in line with estimates by 0.2%. At the closing bell, the Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 52 points to 35 to 176. The S&P 500 rose by 1 point to 44 to 68. And the Nasdaq gained 15 points to 13 to 737. Mortgage rates are up for the third week in a row to just under 7%. The 30-year fixed rate mortgage averaged 6.96% this week, according to data from Freddie Mac. Compare that to a year ago when it was just over 5.2%. Freddie Mac's chief economist says the steadily high rates will prolong affordability challenges longer than expected, but noted that upward pressure on rates is the result of a resilient economy. General Motors unveiled their all-electric Cadillac Escalade IQ on Wednesday. The EV version of the well-known full-size SUV will feature a 55-inch wide dashboard and a 200-kilowatt-hour battery pack with 450 miles on a single charge. The vehicle will be built at GM's Factory Zero in Detroit beginning next year, and they will have a base price of $130,000. Since its introduction, Cadillac has sold over 1 million Escalades worldwide. Officials at the unveiling of the Escalade IQ said the automaker is planning on debuting two more EVs by the end of the year. The inflation report from the Labor Department is showing a modest gain. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics on Thursday morning said that the consumer price index nudged up only two-tenths of a percent in July, which can mean that inflation is moderating. Inflation picked up 3.2% over the last 12 months, with shelter and rent accounting for most of the increase. I'm Megan Steckler, and this has been your Business News Report. 
I'm Elle Lawton, and this is your entertainment news. The 2023 Emmys are officially moving to next year. The Television Academy announced Thursday morning the ceremony will now take place on January 15th. The ceremony had been scheduled for next month, but was postponed due to ongoing actors and writers' strikes. The Emmys announced this year's nominees last month with HBO series Succession leading the way with 27 nominations. Apple TV Plus series Ted Lasso leads the comedy field with 21 nominations. The film Barbie is being banned in Kuwait. A spokesman for the Kuwaiti Ministry of Information said late Wednesday that the movie is being banned in the Middle Eastern country because it, quote, promulgates ideas and beliefs that are alien to Kuwaiti society. The ban was announced shortly after the culture minister in Lebanon called for the film to be banned because it, quote, promotes homosexuality and questions the necessity of marriage and having a family. Social media star Lil Tay is reportedly alive and well after all reports said she had died. Her family allegedly issued a statement to TMZ stating the 14-year-old is safe and alive. This is after her family says her Instagram account was compromised by a third party, which posted that Tay and her brother had passed away on Wednesday. In the alleged statement to TMZ, Tay said she wants to make it clear that her and her brother are alive and well. The original post stating Tay had died has now been deleted. There are new talks between striking writers and the big Hollywood studios. On Thursday morning, the Writers Guild of America told its members that contract talks will resume on Friday. It'll be the first day of negotiations since the strike started over 100 days ago. Last week, the WGA and the studios had a preliminary meeting, which marked a first sign of progress. In similar news, Disney CEO Bob Iger is vowing to help find solutions to resolve strikes by the Hollywood actors and writers. Iger made that pledge during Disney's quarterly earnings call Wednesday as the Writers Guild of America's strike hit the 100-day mark. The actors' union known as SAG-AFTRA went on strike July 14th. Iger said nothing is more important to Disney than its relationship with the creative community. Iger said he's personally committed to quickly find solutions, quote, to the issues that have kept us apart the past few months. More allegations are surfacing against pop star Lizzo. Three of her former dancers filed suit against the singer earlier this month, accusing her of sexual harassment, weight shaming, and creating a hostile work environment. On Tuesday, lawyers for the dancers said they were reviewing complaints from at least six other people who toured with Lizzo, including allegations of a sexually charged environment and failure to pay employees. A representative for Lizzo has not commented on new allegations. The death of Sandra Bullock's longtime partner is causing a huge spike in donations towards ALS. On Tuesday, Randall died at the age of 57 after a three-year-long battle with ALS. The tragic loss has spurred massive donations to the ALS Association. Donations are up 500% over the same time last year. The association said it's, quote, grateful for the amazing outpouring of support in honor of Brian. I'm Elle Lawton, and that was your entertainment news. And that wraps up this week's edition of the Roan Report here on Roan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM. For the Roan Radio News Team, I'm Allie Bruce. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Rowan Report, a weekly news magazine that recaps local, national, and international news that affects you. Be sure to join us every Saturday morning at 9.30 for another edition of The Rowan Report, exclusively here on Rowan Radio, 89.7 WGLS-FM.